Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. I want to welcome you back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 7 through the end of the chapter. I want you to know as we go through the Gospel of Mark that Mark's Gospel is not written as a bunch of haphazard stories that are just kind of all pasted together. Mark has a very specific and intentional plan. We noted last time that in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Mark fronts his gospel with five episodes of opposition and growing opposition by the religious leaders, such that by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 6, they, they want to destroy Jesus. Uh, this opposition may have happened over the course of several years or the entirety of Jesus' ministry, but Mark went ahead and put all these five episodes together at one point to note that the growing opposition to Jesus ultimately leads to their rejection of Jesus as to who he is. So now in chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of the chapter, is going to, this is going to be a bridge section that leading us to what I think is perhaps the most important chapter, at least in the early part of Mark, and that's chapter 4 in the, the parable of the sower. And it's important to understand the parable of the sower uh, in light of what we're going to read here in chapter 3. So this section is going to be a, a, an important bridge that takes what we saw with the re- rejection of the re- religious leaders and uh, Jesus' appointing of his own twelve, and then the parable of the sower that we'll look at next time. Chapter 3, verse 7 begins with, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. He told his disciples that a, a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude, in order that they might not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to make him known. Again, we see some things here that we've already been reminded of before. First off, the identity of who Jesus is. One of the big questions in the Gospel of Mark is, Who is Jesus? We, the readers, know from chapter 1 that he's the Son of God. We're going to watch various groups and individuals and uh, be confronted with who Jesus is. The religious leaders were confronted with who he is, and they ultimately rejected him. We know from chapter 1, and then again here in this chapter, the demons know who he is. This evil spirit falls down and says, you are the Son of God. Now, another important element about this particular passage is Jesus uh, uh, and the crowds. The crowds are always pressing in on Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and We think of crowds as a good thing. They're coming to hear Jesus and to be healed by him and to be taught by him. But in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds are always actually an impediment to the Gospel, an impediment to the work and ministry of Jesus. In chapter 2, the crowds were so so thick and and, and so so many of them that the the paralyzed man couldn't even get in to see Jesus. And so they had to make a hole in the roof to lower this paralyzed man in so that they can see Jesus. So Jesus is going to withdraw to the the lake. when Jesus withdraws to a place of privacy, it's common that he does this after a miracle. Now, the other thing to note about this passage is the tremendous diversity of people that are coming to see him. People from Galilee, a predominantly Jewish region, but also from Judea, which again, obviously, is predominantly Jewish. But then there's 
Idumea, which is the southern part of below Judea, where Herod the Great actually was, was from. And Idumeans were forced Jews. Uh, they were forced to be circumcised uh, uh, long before the time of Herod the Great. But then as well beyond the Jordan River and from the vicinities of Tyre and Sidon, now we're looking at Gentile regions and we're showing this great diversity of Jesus' ministry so that he truly is the light under the nations. Chapter 3 now, verse 13 says, He went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus goes up onto a mountain, and the mountains are going to be very important. We'll see specifically in chapter 11 the, the role of mountains in the Gospel of Mark. But mountains are places of revelation. There are uh, significant episodes in the Gospel of Mark will take place on mountains. In this particular instance, he appoints his own twelve, his own disciples. Remember, of course, Moses went up to the Mount Sinai where he receives the law. So Jesus appoints himself apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. Uh, and, and, and he names them <coughs> excuse me, himself. Reminds, of course, of perhaps of Adam naming the animals. Only that which the person who is superior has the right to name something or, or someone. He calls the twelve now in order to be with him and then he might send them to preach and have authority to drive out demons. We've noted that the second key with the Gospel of Mark is, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? And we've noted so far that being a disciple means that they were following Jesus and that they were with Jesus. But now we know that the disciple has two roles, or these apostles in particular have two roles. One is in order that they might be with him, and secondly, that he might send them out to preach. We are not called just to simply be with Jesus. We are never called for our own sakes only. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were never called for our own sake. We were never called so that we can lavish in being saved or have security of our salvation in, our own, in and of ourselves. All that may be true. We were called for a purpose, so that God might send us on mission. Now that mission begins by being with Jesus. Now the appointing of the twelve likely includes the fact that Jesus is creating a new Israel. Note the relationship between chapter 3 and chapter 2 now. Uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, the Pharisees and religious leaders were this growing opposition to Jesus. Jesus warns them that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't put a, a new patch on an old garment. What I have is this new teaching. You must reject what you have and come and embrace me. But they don't embrace Jesus. Instead, they wish to destroy him. So Jesus then turns and says, okay, I'll make my own twelve. The leadership in Israel has rejected Jesus, and so now Jesus is appointing a new twelve to be, I believe, the new Israel. And as a result, uh, they will. Uh, the Gospel of Luke says that they will sit on thrones. Uh, Luke chapter two, verse uh, chapter twenty-two, uh, verse um, uh, twenty-eight and twenty-nine says, "You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you one, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones." judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the disciples are appointed as a new twelve, and they're giving role as the kings and, a, a prom, and responsibility to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the list of the twelve disciples or the twelve apostles always begins with Simon, uh, Peter, uh, he's always the first, and then James and John are listed next. We know that Peter, James, and John are going to be this inner circle of, 12, uh, of the twelve. Jesus has his large crowds and his masses, 
Then he has his 12, and then amongst the 12, he has his three. These three are going to be privileged to certain events that the other disciples are not privileged to, Peter, James, and John. Now, verse 20 then picks up, says, And he came home, and the multitude gathered again, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He's lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, saying, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever, uh, and whatever blasphemy they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Spirit uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an everlasting or eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now his mother and his brothers arrived, and they were standing outside and sent word to him, and they called him. And a multitude was standing around, and they said to him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered them, saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The binding of the strong man is an important episode. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, exercises a, a demon, as we've seen before, is a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Uh, this echoes the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, where we're told in verse 10, it says, They rebelled against God and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. Jesus is casting out a demon and the onlookers then reply by saying, can this be the son of David? You see, as we've mentioned before, the, the, the people in, in, in the first century Jewish world had come to think that the enemy was the pagan nations. After all, even though they were called to those nations, all they've ever experienced from those nations is opposition and oppression from Egypt to, to Assyria, uh, to, to uh, um, Greece, to Rome. So, but Jesus' answer is, it's not the, the pagan nations that are the enemy, it's the devil. As we've seen already, Jesus' casting out demons was a sign that the kingdom of God has come near. Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty 20 explicitly make this statement. For Jesus, then, anyone who's not fighting on his side is siding with the enemy. And perhaps this is what he means by blasphemy of the Spirit. They're defining, they are defining the battle as the work of the enemy, and, but this is a battle that Jesus has already won. He has entered the strong man's home and he has bound the strong man. Now, the question, of course, what, what does it mean that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and there's all kinds of different theories or thoughts about what it means, but perhaps the main or best explanation is that anyone who denies that the kingdom of God has come in the work of the Spirit through Jesus is actually, by definition, an outsider and is guilty of an eternal sin. To deny that the kingdom of God has come in the work of the Spirit through Jesus is to make oneself a true outsider and is guilty of an, of an eternal sin. This is an inability to discern good and evil. The, the work of Jesus is good, and his op the opposition of Jesus is that which is evil. The, the opposition to Jesus is, is the devil, the enemy. And therefore, uh, verse 30 says, because they were saying this, because they were, the, the Greek implies they were, they were habitually, continuously saying this, that he has an unclean spirit. 
they are showing themselves to be on the side of the devil. Now, the question, of course, is can you forgive the unforgivable? Can you commit the sin if you're a Christian? And uh, all these questions that we ask, I'm not sure the, the biblical text was really trying to, to raise these questions, or let alone these answers, but ultimately the 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one speaking by the Spirit can say, Jesus be cursed. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether we've committed the sin or not, the reality is if we confess our sins, he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Now, at the end of the episode, Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. And this is very significant. Jesus is going to redefine family. Now, land and family are these two central and key components of what it means to be an Israelite in the Old Testament. Land and family. If you have family, you have, uh, you have offspring. And this offspring are those who are going to work when you're too old uh, to work the land. And if you have land, then that offspring and your progeny then have land to work so that you can be provided for when you are old. Now, Jesus redefines family by saying, My mother and my brothers and my sister are those who do the will of God. Notice, of course, the role of male and female. Women are included in, in the redefinition of what it means uh, uh, to be uh, descendants of Jesus. Remember, land and family, it was important that you had land so they could provide for your well-being when you get old, but you have to have family. But that family, the key was that inheritors in the Old Testament world were always the males. The men inherit the land. The females become part of another family. So Jesus is simply saying, my mother and my brother and my sisters are the one who does the will of God, including females or women in the role of inheritors or the role of the definition of what it means to be a family. Now, the binding of the strong one is also important. Many look at the idea of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, where uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and look at this as something future. But Jesus seems to have indicated that it's actually something that's already present. He says, I have entered the strong man's house, and I have plundered uh, his property. I, I could not enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless I first bind the strong man and then plunder his house. The work that I'm doing, casting out demons, can only be done if Satan has already been bound. Now, when you look at this idea of the binding of Satan in the book of Revelation, it says in particular that Satan is bound in order that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Uh, the idea then of binding uh, of Satan is not that Satan's there and can no longer uh, can no longer tempt or or, or test or, or or give these various things that he that he does, but that so that he will not deceive the nations any longer. This is really significant. Jesus's coming is the beginning of the kingdom of God, the fulfillment of the, of God's promises through Abraham to the nations. But remember, Abraham was called not only that he might be a special nation, but that he might bless all the nations of the earth. The Israelites had lost sight of that. They had lost sight of their role of being a light unto the nations, as Isaiah 42 says and Isaiah 49 says. And it's understandable why they had lost sight of that. After all, first off, they considered themselves to be the chosen nation, the chosen race. We're God's special people, and you're not. Now, they forgot that the you're not part meant, well, we're supposed to be a light to you so that you can come in and join us. But as a result of the nations opposing Israel, whether it's the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, it became easy to understand why the Israelites would lose sight of this mission to the nations. But if Jesus is truly Israel, if he truly is fulfilling God's promises to the people of God in the Old Testament, then he must also be a light of revelation to the nations. And in order to be a light of revelation to the nations, he must bind the strong man who is deceiving 
the nations, so that the result of him binding the devil is the nations are no longer deceived. And as a result, we should not be surprised that with the gospel of Jesus going forth, the nations begin to enjoy, to, to begin to be included in God's family. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.